listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Last week, just to kind of catch you up of where we're at, the book of Acts opens up. Jesus is uh, he's completing the 40 days that he spent with his uh, disciples and other followers of his. After his resurrection, he appears to them, and it seems like he just disappears from them at will. And he's instructing them. He's encouraging them. He's explaining things to them, we believe, about the Old Testament and how that ties in to who he is as Messiah. And then we find Jesus on the side of the mountain with his uh, disciples. And he says to them, look, I'm about to go away, but you're going to receive power. If you'll stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to receive power. And then you're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem in the whole region of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You're going to give witness to what you've seen and heard, most specifically my resurrection. You're going to represent me. And then the Bible says that he ascended up out of their sight. And as they were gazing, there were two men in white, angels we presume, that said, what are you standing here looking up into the sky for? This same Jesus that has gone away is going to come back in the same way you saw him. And basically... Y'all better get on back to Jerusalem because this thing's about to get crazy. And that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost, the feast day of celebration. Things did get a little crazy. The Holy Spirit descended. The Holy Spirit uh, made himself in his presence recognized by the sound of a mighty rushing wind and the sight of a cloud of fire that split into individual little pieces and hovered over each one of the believers. And they began to utter the wonders of God in languages they had never been taught, in languages they had never studied, but in languages that were heard and understood by the masses that were in Jerusalem because it was a feast day. And they were hearing the wonders of God spoken in their own native tongue by people who obviously had never been educated in so many different languages. And from that point forward, the apostles began to preach and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus, Messiah, from Nazareth, who you all crucified, but God raised from the dead victorious. God has glorified, and this same Jesus will redeem any who confess him as Lord and Savior. And that's what the book of Acts is basically going to do. It's going to tell us how these early apostles communicated the gospel and what happened as a result. We've learned in these chapters that Peter preached his first public sermon and 3,000 people became followers of Jesus. 3,000 folks confessed Jesus as Messiah, the one who was crucified and the one who is risen. We believe to Peter and they baptized them 3,000. 
thousand new followers. On the next opportunity that Peter had to preach a public sermon, it came on the heels of a miracle. We will recall that on their way to the temple, Peter and John came across a crippled man who had been crippled from birth, asking for money just to get by. Peter and John see this man, go to him, have no money to give them, give him and say to this man, buddy, we don't have any money, but what we do have, we give to you freely in the name of Jesus, the Messiah from Nazareth, get up and walk. And that man stood up having been lame for 40 years, all his life and began to run and praise God and leap and shout that he had been healed in the name of Jesus, the one crucified by his power, he had been healed. And that stirred up a ruckus, but it also gave Peter a chance to preach again to a big crowd. And the Bible says that the number of men who were believers was 5,000. We don't know if that's 5,000 to go with the 3,000 to make 8,000 or if just 2,000 more believed making 3,000, 5,000. Bottom line is I've never seen like 10 folks come to Christ at one time. So whether we're talking about two more thousand or five more thousand, And the bottom line is this thing that Jesus called the church, his body on earth, those that were followers of his by faith was growing by leaps and bounds, if you'll excuse the pun, with that one who had been healed. And as Peter began to preach and folks began to believe and the stirring of the ruckus happened in the temple, the temple guards, the Pharisees, the pre, uh, not Pharisees, Sadducees, the priests came to Peter and John and said, what do you think you're doing? And they put them under arrest, held them overnight. And then on the next day, they interrogated them in front of the entire Jewish religious council, the Sanhedrin plus the high priest and all his family. And they all stood over Peter and John trying to bully them trying to threaten them, trying to convince them that they did not want to continue to preach in the name of Jesus because if they did, boy, they were going to get roughed up. But Peter and John said, you know what, fellas? We hear what you're saying. We know you got the authority. We know that pretty much you can do whatever you want to because the Romans are the ones that are backing you. But here's the thing. We've seen what we saw. We heard what we heard. We know the one who has ascended back up into glory that we saw y'all crucify and God raised and we've got no choice but to tell others about him. So I don't know what you think is right and wrong, but this is what we're gonna keep doing. Well, having really no recourse, the authorities let them go. Peter and John go back to their company, the folks that they were with, the most intimate crowd that they had around them. They told them what had happened. They told them about the threats of these leaders and they began to pray. And in prayer, these new, uh, this new organism called the church, these followers of Jesus who had been called by him to tell others about him in prayer said, God, you run everything. You're sovereign. You're in control. Nothing happens beyond your understanding and allowance. You've heard what they said. You know what they can do. Ultimately, we ask that you give us boldness to just keep doing what you've called us to do no matter who stands in our way. That's where we find ourselves today. 
In Acts chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse number 32. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and bought and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, I'm going to break this. We're, we're going to go from, uh, from chapter 4, verse 32, all the way down to chapter 5, verse 11. I'm going to break this into two parts. The first part I'm, I'm describing by three words, and they are power, progress, partnership. Power, progress, partnership. Luke, in this little section, does something very similar to what he did just two chapters prior. Just two chapters prior, we saw on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit come. And those uh, believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with power and they began to do what Jesus said they were going to do. And Luke tells us as a result of that, that they were all of one mind. They shared meals together. They, they continued in the apostles' doctrine. And so basically he sums up what happened after this incredible event that took place. Then Luke gives us like a little summary of what happened as a result. Last week, we saw the great event was these folks that are followers of Jesus got threatened by the religious authorities in Jerusalem and told, you got to stop doing what you're doing. And in response, they simply prayed for boldness. They say, God, we know what you've called us to do. And now this big event has happened. Peter and John have stood before all of the rulers and they told them to cease and desist. Now, God, what we need to do is have you give us boldness because we're not going to cease and we're not going to desist because you have not told us to do that. So we're going to keep doing. We need you to give us boldness. And Luke says, as a result of their asking for boldness, we see power, progress, and partnership. Facing early persecution, the early church humbled and submitted to God. And what did he do? He blessed them with power and grace. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Sometimes we're in difficulty. We're finding ourselves in in times that we don't have an answer for. And like Paul before us, sometimes we go to God and we say, God, I don't know what to do about this. And I don't know what you're going to do about this. And and, and how I just need you to change this or or I'm not going to fulfill what you've called me to do. I just, or I'm going to have to quit God. And God says to us sometimes, what he said to Paul and that is I'm not going to take that away from you I'm not going to change that like you want me to but I will give you grace 
And my grace is sufficient for you. That's why we can't put God on the hook when our life doesn't work out like we'd like. You know, we got a plan for our life. And many times that plan doesn't work because of the actions of others or because of the problems that we have or the circumstances or the situations that are out of our control. And we say, God, you forgot about me. And God says, no, I hadn't. Number one, I've never promised you that you were going to have an easy life, but I did promise I'll be with you always. If you're a follower of my son, if you know me by faith in the one who gave his life up for you, then you can count on me to walk with you. You can count on my grace to sustain you. And probably what you're going through that you're calling bad, it might be bad, but I'm actually using all things to work together for the good of those who know me are called according to my purpose. And so we see in this passage, when they asked for boldness, you know what God did? He gave them boldness. And he gave them power. And he gave them grace. So they're just pressing on. The apostles' witness to the resurrection continued to progress. It was moving forward. Every chance they had to tell about Jesus and his resurrection, they were taking it. Without fear... I don't know. Maybe they did look over their shoulder sometime and have to go, we got to quit doing that. We just, but they pressed on and the gospel moved forward. Everyone in this passage was committed to the mission of the church. What was the mission of the church? To present Jesus as who he is and to present him to others so that they too might accept or reject depending on what they were going to do everyone was committed to the mission but they were also in this little section it tells us that everyone was committed to meeting the needs of one another look what it says it says that uh, in verse number 32 no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, right now, if you watch any of the news outlets, you're going to see folks talking about something that has never worked anywhere it has ever been instituted within a government context, and that is the idea of socialism. A lot of buzz right now about socialism. Here's the problem. Socialism doesn't work. Socialism has never worked, and socialism won't work in this country either but the notion is socialism says let's bring everything to equality let's don't have rich and poor because really do they need all of that money that they've got when these folks could use what they've got in excess if we could just somehow balance the pendulum a little bit that would work there's all kinds of, 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 of social reasons and human variables that make that not ever going to work. Robin Hood stole from the rich and gave to the poor and it sell a whole lot of movie tickets and a lot of books, but that's not how you run a government of people. But there's a lot of buzz. When you read this right here, it almost sounds like these guys had bought into socialism. The problem with that thinking is this. Nobody ever told them what to do. 
Nobody came to them and said, all right, Herbert, you're going to have to come off of some of your wallet so that uh, John over here can get by. So I'm going to need to see what you got in your wallet so I can give something. That never happened. You know what happened is these people began to see one another in a different way than they ever had because of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. These people began to see one another as followers of Jesus and my brothers and sisters who at times were in need. And if they were in need and I had something that could help meet that need, I wanted to meet that need because I love them and because I was thankful for them and because I was connected to them in the same way that they were connected. And that's through the person of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit resident within us. We see these folks buying in, not to socialism, but to radical generosity, radical generosity. Look what he says. He says, those that, that they had everything in common, flip over. Uh, there was no one in verse 34 and no, no needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Listen, they're selling land and houses in that time would be similar to you and I doing these kinds of things. It would be like us liquidating our investments. You invested in the stock market anywhere? You, you, you got a nest egg laying around in some kind of, 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 of 401k or some kind of mutual fund or anything like that. It would be like you going and selling that off, liquidating your investments and bringing those monies to me. It would, wait, wait, Pastor Ken, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's my retirement account. That's right. That was their retirement account. That was their nest egg, if you will. Land and other houses put them in a wealthy class. It'd be like us liquidating our investments. It would be like us liquidating or cashing out our savings accounts. Now, this is the money that you can get to. This is the little, this is the little stash that you got over here for emergencies. But here's what we do. We have that stash for emergencies. Dave Ramsey's right. Crown Financial Man's right. We need to have that set aside. But here's what they were doing. They were looking at the needs of their brothers and sisters and saying, that's emergency enough for me. And they were going and taking those things that they were planning to rely upon and they were giving them to the apostles to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters liquidating their savings account. It would be like selling your vacation home that you've waited all your life to build and to have and to go to and saying, you know what? We don't need two homes. We'll sell that one and give all the money to the apostles. You say, well, that don't, that don't count for me, Pastor Kevin, because I, I don't have, I don't have very much retirement and I sure don't have a lot of savings and I don't have a vacation home. So I'm off the hook. Got a boat, motorcycle, car with grass growing underneath it. I watch that this one I got tell time, but it won't do nothing else. I mean, hey, what we got? See, it's, 
When, when we talk about radical generosity, everybody can be a part of that. They were seeing one another as God wants us to see one another. And that is loved by him. And that is worth investing in. You say, well, Pastor, if I did that, then what am I, what am I going to count on in my retirement? Um, the God who owns the cattle on the thousand hills. I'm not telling you not to be wise with your money. I'm just saying, here's what happened when the church started cooking. When things started happening and power was present and grace was abundant and folks were hearing the gospel, people got generous with what they had. In fact, they didn't even say, that's mine. In fact, it's God's and if he wants me to sell it and give it, so be it. I don't need it anyway. That's what was happening in the church. Power, progress, partnership. And then Luke highlights a particular individual. He says in verse number 36, and and, and he brings up this guy, I don't think to toot his horn, but I think to introduce a character that's going to be a recurring character in the, cha- in the chapters to follow. But I think he brings this guy in to kind of set him apart to say, and with folks being radically generous, here's a guy that represented that radical generosity. You're going to see him. I'm going to talk more about him in the next chapter. Let me just show you this particular example of radical generosity. Verse 36, he says thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas. Now, we're going to see this fellow not called by Joseph, but by his nickname, Barnabas. Barnabas was what the apostles were calling this fellow because Barnabas means son of encouragement. It was a nickname. They were calling this guy, boy, you son of encouragement. And it's just where he just came across. And that was, he just exuded encouragement. Everybody wanted to be around Barnabas. Why? Because he was an encourager. He was a, he was a, he was a, 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 a positive guy. And we're going to see that flesh out next summer sometime when we get around to him. But Barnabas, this guy, he was a Levite, Luke says. So he's telling us, so we'll understand that, that, that Barnabas comes from the tribe of Levi, one of Jacob's sons named Levi, who, interestingly enough, that tribe of, of, of the Israelites was where uh, Aaron came from. Moses' brother, Moses and Aaron, came from the tribe of Levi, and Aaron was set apart and his family to serve as priests in the temple. And so that was their job. Well, centuries and centuries and centuries has passed. Things are working different in the temple now. The Sadducees have control of the temple. The Sanhedrin are doing the running of the things. Rome is behind the temple. And so Luke's just letting you know, Barnabas is a Levite, according to the religious uh, designation. But he's a native of Cyprus. Barnabas was a Levite by by tribe, but he was born on the island of Cyprus out in the Mediterranean Sea. 
So Barnabas was from a totally different place, and yet he's in Jerusalem. Why? Celebrating the Passover, celebrating the Feast of Pentecost, and now he's got caught up in this gospel message about Jesus resurrected, and he's bought in, and now he's in the picture, this foreigner, if you will, who probably heard the wonders of God spoken in the language that was native to him on the day of Pentecost. We see this Barnabas. It says that in verse 37 that he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas, a guy that didn't even live in Judea, I mean, he wasn't even in Israel proper. He was on the Gentile island of Cyprus. And yet now he has come, he has trusted Christ, and he's wanting to invest in people that he doesn't even live around. He doesn't even know these folks. Now, bring this into context. You go on vacation and you go to another church because you're going to do that. You go on vacation, you're going to worship somewhere, right? You'd never go on vacation, not worship. So you go and you worship and you hear, some of y'all are laughing. Why y'all? You go and you hear about a need in a congregation of folks that you don't even know. I mean, you don't even know these folks. In fact, you're in the service and you're like, well, this ain't what I'm used to, but you know what? They love the Lord. We love the Lord. And you hear about a need and it's a big need. And you look over at your wife and you say, I think we need to contribute to that need. And she reaches over and starts going into her purse to pull out some cash to put in. And you're going, no, no, no. I, I was thinking more along the lines and you start pulling up your bank app. And she's thinking, you're thinking, you're thinking about what? And the next thing you know, she sees you clicking on that savings account. And you're like, I was thinking about transferring this over to the checking account. And then you just write a check. And she's looking at you like, are you crazy? And you're like, no, I just feel like that we need to invest in this need. And you're going, you're crazy, Pastor Guy. Look, that's what was happening. This guy didn't know these people. He had no, and no connection. He wasn't even neighbors with them. And he goes and sells his land. Now, what that doesn't tell us, Luke doesn't tell us if this land was in Cyprus or if this land was in the, around the realm of Judea. I think it was probably in the realm of Judea because it would have taken him quite a bit to go back and sell and, and ride the ship and all that kind of, they didn't have any, no, obviously no electron, no electricity. And so it would have been a real big deal for him to sell something back inside. I think this fellow was a wealthy guy who had land in Judea. And he just went and liquidated that thing, sold it off, and brought it to Peter. Um, hey, guys, look, just use that however you want to use it. I, I'm, I'm hearing folks, and, and they don't have a place to stay. Some of these folks don't have food. Look, just however you need to use that, man. We're, this, this thing is crazy. I mean, I'm seeing the things that, 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 that the Lord is doing, and I just want to have where I can be a part. Barnabas. Now, you got Barnabas in your mind? What a guy. What an encouragement. What, what an obedient follower of Jesus. And then chapter 5, verse 1. But. Now, Luke is making a contrast. Okay, so you see what's happening. Church is cooking, man. Things are happening. God is moving. People are believing. Things are going nuts in Jerusalem. And there's this guy who represents, and man, it just, everybody is just going crazy. 
but. He says right here, but. We find the story of a gentleman by the name of Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. Now, if you've been around church, if you've not been around church at all, you might not know this name. But uh, if you've been around church much of your life, you know uh, Ahab's wife was Jezebel. Any, anybody, y'all know of anybody ever had a baby girl named her Jezebel? No, y'all know. Anybody ever heard of a baby boy growing up in, in the name Judas? Well, maybe that's a little bit more common, but you probably don't if you're a Christian. You're like, I ain't naming my kid Judas. Why? Because they're associated with negativity. Ananias and Sapphira fit this bill. If we called the first part power, progress, and partnership, I'm calling this last part hypocrisy, holiness, and holes in the ground. Let's read. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, if that little passage right there don't shock you, I don't know what will. This is the New Testament church. Like this is a group of folks together in the name of the Lord doing very much the same thing that you and I are doing. You know, if, we're, if we're radically different today than what they were then, we are doing something wrong. Because we're just the continuation of what happened, of what was birthed as a result of the coming of the Holy Spirit, indwelling those who have trusted Jesus by faith and are following him by faith. And one of our folks died on the spot 
And then so did his wife. And that should be shocking. You know why? Because what they did is very familiar to you and I. That is known, secret, premeditated sin. And if you're like me, you're sitting there going, all right, I hope he's going to tell me what was different about them than about me because I'm feeling like I'm probably guilty of them same things. The reality of the fact is you are, and so am I. So what's happening here? I think Luke is recording for our benefit a very important principle when it comes to the people of God, and that is this. Sin is serious. Sin is never secret. And God won't ignore it. So let's break this down. Let's see what's happening. Luke is contrasting Barnabas. Barnabas sold out. I mean, radical partnership, obedient, just being faithful. And nothing he owns is going to keep him from fulfilling what God's called him and all the rest of us to do and to be. But on the other side over here, you got this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And they did something as well. They also sold a piece of property. And it seems, based on what Luke is telling us, that they sold this property and then got together and decided that they were going to keep some of it for themselves and we're going to take the rest of it to the church. Now, that's not a problem. And that's what Peter said. Peter said, look, did anybody tell you to sell this property? No. Has anybody required you to sell that and give it to the church? No. You won't ever hear me ask any of you, did you give this morning? I mean, we'll get the, our, our two elder statesmen. In fact, we'll need another elder statesman to stand back there because Jim was one of them and uh, Herbert needs somebody to stand back there and take the offer. I don't ever come to any of you and go, did you give today? Because so, you might go, yeah, I gave it to office. It ain't about what you did as far as I'm concerned. That's between you and God. Peter's like, did anybody tell you to sell that? Did anybody force you to go do it? No, it was yours to do with what you wanted to. When you sold it, you didn't have to give it to the church. You could have sold that piece of property. You could have bought something else. You could have done. That's between you and God. We never told you it was yours to do with what you wanted. Now, I'm going to step out of that for a second and go, don't think what he's saying is, is if it's yours, you can do with it what you want. The the point he's trying to make is no one was forcing these folks to do anything. If you have possession of something and you're a follower of Jesus, then you submit to the fact that that belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you. And that's what, when you think it belongs to you, that's when your stuff has you instead of you having stuff. If it belongs to God, then you work that out between you and God, not between you and Oasis Church. Okay, that's what we're saying. And that's what Peter's going. You didn't have to sell it. And when you sold it, you didn't have to bring it. Why in the world did you let Satan convince you to bring it to us and present it as though, like Barnabas, you're bringing all the proceeds? 
This was hypocrisy. This was just a lie. It was pretend. They wanted to look like they were doing more than they really were doing. And I'm telling you, church, that ought to scare us to death because we do this all the time. Don't we want to be thought of as more righteous than we know we really are? Of course we do. If we're in a conversation and we're around folks that are talking about what they read this week in the scripture, aren't we a lot of times tempted to talk about the last thing we learned? You know, I, you know what I was reading also in the book of Jonah and I was reading about Jonah who went down into the water. And yes, you read that in Sunday school 13 years ago. Aren't we tempted to don't we come in them doors don't we we come in them doors and we cross that threshold and then all of a sudden all the stuff changes we're smiling how you doing this good to see you and we might have been talking about them on the way hypocrisy knowing good and well I mean, can you say calculated, premeditated? I'd be willing to bet that nobody came into church this morning and said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go in and tell all them folks what I really think about them. No, you calculated being nice to folks that you really would rather if they just went away. We do what Ananias and Sapphira did. Hypocrisy, calculated deceit, but in your mind, you're going, no, but theirs was bigger. There, there's, you know why we do that? Because we just don't want to put ourselves in the crosshairs of what Luke is sharing with us through the inspiration of the Spirit about the fact that sin is serious. It's never secret, and God won't ignore it. Now, is God going to kill every one of us? Hallelujah, it does not appear that he's going to do that. But does God divinely judge? Yes, he does. And sometimes killing us would be more merciful, I think, than letting us just continue to waste in our sin. Sometimes his judgment is just letting us have what we think we want. Bottom line is, look at this. Peter goes, I don't know what you think you're doing. And this is, this is divine discernment. And if you think about it, was really their deception as big a deal as Peter's denying the Lord? I mean, that just that, this is just a question. As I'm reading it and I'm studying, I'm going, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He's, he's got a whole lot bigger rap sheet than they do. And now he's the one that's speaking with authority we're not allowed to go, well, God, that's not fair. You let, uh-uh. Peter was forgiven. Peter repented. It's, it's that reality that allows me to stand on this stage any given week. Because you run across the right person who attended Liberty University between the years of 1991 and 1995-ish, then you might discover some things about your pastor that I would not be able to deny. But you know what? God has forgiven me. God has washed that. And, and, and what I'm doing is not telling you what I think. I'm just telling you what God said. And Peter goes, wait a minute. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, 
You didn't bring all that. You're bringing that in and you're setting it over here where we got Barnabas's and, and you're puffing yourself out. That's not all of it. Where's the rest of it? Not that Peter wanted him to go get the rest of it. He just realized, I think, through divine discernment, wait a minute, you're lying. And Ananias, you're not lying to me. It's, it's no difference to me. You're lying to God. You're lying to the Holy. You're laying this, wanting the, the body of the, of the Spirit, the body associated with Christ to hold you up on the back of a big, fat lie. And I don't even know that Peter knew he was going to die. He just, boom, died. Now, if, if you're like me, I'm reading, I go, so they just, so they just stopped what they were doing and, and sent some folks. I'm, I'm just imagining somebody dying as I'm preaching on a Sunday morning and me looking over and going, Stephen, Joey, how about y'all go bury that guy? What y'all tell us some authority or something? They didn't even tell his wife. But she showed up three hours later. <laughs> and I just think Peter should have told her now before you answer this. But he didn't. Uh, Sapphira, did you sell that for this amount? Yeah, we did. <clears throat> Shouldn't have said that. You hear them folks walking up the steps? They just got done burying your, your husband. He'll bury you too. And she drops dead. Man, doesn't it, isn't that shocking? I mean, this is a shocking encounter. And the church was cooking. Power, progress, partnership, hypocrisy, holiness, two holes in the ground. Folks are dead and being, you know why? Because sin is serious. Sin is never secret and God won't ignore it. We see this picture and it looks a lot like some similar Old Testament encounters, uh, I think about in Leviticus chapter number 10, a couple of Aaron's sons were, were, were serving in the temple and, and the Bible says that they offered strange incense, strange fire, like, like God had a particular type of incense that had to be mixed just the right way in worship. And these guys just, they, they just got cavalier and just mixed up the recipe a little bit. And the Bible tells us in, uh, in Leviticus 10 that God brought fire and burnt them up. Their names were Nadab and Abihu. What was God saying is, what I say about temple worship, I mean it. I am holy, and you're going to do what I say. Burn them up. Did the folks get the message? Sure they did. Genesis chapter 19, we hear about a lady who was forced out with her family and her husband from the city they were living in because God was about to rain some fire down on that city. And, he, and the angel told her, when you leave from here, don't turn around and look back. Don't any of you look back. You know who she is. Lot's wife, we don't even know her name, but we know what she became when she turned around and looked at the city against what God had said. She turned into a big pile of salt. You think God was making a statement in the Old Testament with that? Yes, he was. Now think about Korah. He bowed up against Moses and, and his crowd. In, uh, in Numbers chapter 16, the Bible says that the earth opened up and swallowed them. You don't walk away from that without remembering 
what you saw. You think God was making a statement? Yes, he was making a statement. I think about a gentleman by the name of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6, who was walking alongside of the ark being carried by a cart, which was against God's way, but the king was having it done this way. And the, and the, the, the donkey hit a, hit a snag and the cart went sideways and the ark of the covenant began to topple. And in an effort to keep it from falling on the ground, this guy named Uzzah put his hands up to steady the ark, fell dead. But God, he was trying to hold up your box. God said, I said, don't touch that box. You think God was making a statement? Yes. What is that statement? I am holy. You don't push me. You don't stand up in rebellion against me. Oh, I love you. And I'm going to pay a ransom for you. But you cannot go nose to nose with me. The person that I think Luke is making this parallel most closely to is found in Joshua chapter 7. Y'all know that Joshua fought the battle of, yeah, Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. God told Joshua, when the walls come tumbling down, you go in, you kill everybody there. I own this new land don't take any of the money, don't take any of the clothing, don't take any of the stuff that belongs to me. And a gentleman by the name of Achan took a couple of robes, took a little silver, took a little gold, nobody's going to miss this, took it back to his tent, hid it in the tent. The Israelites went up against a much smaller city by the name of Ai and just got whipped and Joshua's like, what in the world, God, is happening? We went against Jericho, and you caused the walls to fall down. Them same folks went against Ai, and they whipped us. What are you doing? He said, I'm not doing nothing. You got sin in the camp, buddy. You better get it out. Went through a whole process of, of trying to figure out who it was, and it finally found Achan. And Joshua says, Achan, what did you do? He said, Joshua, I'm sorry. I, I took some stuff. Send the tent. What ended up happening? They executed Achan and his whole family. And you know what was happening at that time? Israel was cooking. Progress was happening. Promised land was coming. And sin in the camp brought everything to a screeching halt. But did the Israelites learn a lesson from Achan? Yes, sir. Sin is serious. Sin's not secret, and God won't ignore it. And I think that's what Luke is showing us right here. By this, look, y'all, church was moving, and then sin came in. I think this was a deliberate attack of the enemy. He tried to get them from outside. They didn't bite. So what did he do? Came at them from inside with secret sin. But God brought it to light. God dealt with it. That's a hard passage. Oh, man, it's just hard to wrestle with. And, and I don't want to put it where you take yourself off the hook. You're on the hook. I'm on the hook. But here's some questions. As, as we, we look at this hard passage, we won't try to make it personal. I want to ask you three questions. It just kind of goes with everything we've read here. Question number one. 
How does God want to stretch you in the area of partnership and generosity? Like, what is it that God's wanting to do to stretch you as it applies to generosity? Can I tell you, I I have a problem. It, It is difficult for me, I think, to be generous financially. I give. I give, we, Stacy and I give off the top, but when it comes to like things that pop up, man, I just, it's hard for me because I look and I go, I ain't got a lot. And I start giving over, so that's an area that I know he wants to stretch me. But maybe it's not that for you. Maybe it's the commitment to give regularly. And he's wanting to stretch you and say, generous, come on. Come on, we got a lot coming in. We could come out with a little bit more for my work. So however God's doing to you, or maybe it's time. Like you're willing to give, I'll write a check, but man, my time is valuable. Maybe God wants to stretch you in the area of generosity where time and partnership is concerned. What's God, how does God want to stretch you in your generosity? Here's just a, just to kind of let you know, if you let God stretch you in the area of generosity, then he'll just keep stretching you. Like you won't get to a part where God's like, okay, that's enough. You're good. You just keep doing that till you die and we'll be all right. He won't. He'll keep pulling and pulling and pulling. Why? Because what did Jesus give up? Everything. And who's he trying to make us look like? Jesus. So question one, how does God want to stretch you in the area of generosity? Are you a Barnabas? Will you let God make you into a Barnabas? Question number two. Is your life currently marked by partnership or pretending? Is your life currently marked by partnership or pretending? Like who we see, is that who you are or is that who you want us to think you are? Is, is that where you're at or is that just where you want us to think you're at? Because here's what we need. We need vulnerability. We need, uh, we need transparency. We need to be who we are. You know, a great place to be who you are is in a life group. We got a wall back there with all kinds of life group options that I hope you'll pick out so that you can get connected to some folks where you can learn how to be vulnerable and transparent. You can learn how to be who you are and let them sharpen, let them stretch, let them walk with you in becoming more of a partner than a pretender. But that's what you need to work out with the Lord. And then question number three, what secret sin is God bringing to your mind right now that needs to be dealt with today? Like, so as we were talking, you're thinking, oh man, I got, he keeps saying sin is serious and sin's never secret, but I got one don't nobody know about. You think nobody knows about it. God watches every single time. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's not doing anything but hindering your ability to do and to be what God has called you to do and to be. It's a lie you're buying into. It's the enemy saying you can be fulfilled and you can be secure in this. If you just keep doing this, it's going to make you happy and fulfill you and fill that void. And that's just a big old lie. It's sin. It's keeping you from being what God's called you to be. And you know what else it's doing? If you're a part of this church, it's keeping us from being everything that God wants to do and everything God wants to make in us. What's your secret sin 
that you need to confess today. God's saying, I hadn't killed you. I love you, but I hope you see that sin is serious. And it's not a secret. I know it. And I'm not going to ignore it. But I will forgive it. If you'll confess it, I'll cleanse it. I get it behind you and you'll be clean and you can follow me like you want to. As long as you're going to keep doing that, there's going to be a wedge. So what's he sharing with you today? What is it that needs to be dealt with? Every head bowed, every eye closed. How's God wanting to stretch you in the area of generosity? Ask him, Lord, what is it that has a hold of me that you want me to be willing to let go of? Lord, am I really partnering or am I just pretending? I don't want to be a pretender and be real. Lord, what is that sin? Let me confess it. God, I know it's sin against you, but I know Jesus died. His blood is sufficient to wash me clean. Pray you'll forgive me. Cleanse me. Give me the courage to stay away and move forward. Maybe you're here and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. Bottom line is, God loves you just like you are. He'll take you just like you are, but He'll never leave you just like you are. You want to be what what He sees you to be. If you want to embrace the promises He's given to you by faith. God, I know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for me, and I, I, I believe that he's alive. I believe you raised him from the dead, and God, I want to be a part of your family. I want you to have my life. I want you to change me. I want you to remake me. I want to be a witness for your son. We've got some folks over here that love to pray with you. All you got to do is move toward them. To my right, your left, down here at the cross. We're going to stand. Heads are still bad. Eyes are still closed. I'm going to pray. If you want to go, just walk down. If you want to wait till we're all dismissing, they'll still be down there for a minute. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. That's a hard passage to wrestle with, to swallow. God, I pray that you'll help us to see the seriousness of sin. And recognize that we simply cannot let it remain hidden in our life. God, I thank you for, for Jesus. Thank you for his love, for his sacrifice. Forgiveness that comes through confession, repentance. I pray you'll move us in that direction. God, I thank you for an opportunity to be together with these brothers and sisters. And I ask that you'll use us, that you'll grant us with power, progress, 
partnership, to fill us with grace, to do a mighty work as a result of obedience. Give us boldness. We look forward to what you're going to do. We love you and we thank you. First in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.